language learners with all kinds of disabilities, even developmental disabilities, do uh, fare better when they're learning in their first language and have that, um, that support. So bilingualism is in reach for everyone and I think that's an important growth mindset to have um, that every student with a disability can um, and, and should learn a language, especially be encouraged to maintain their first language. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sofronis. How are schools accommodating English language learners with disabilities? What are some of the most common challenges when working with these students, and how might we overcome them? What impacts do EL and disability status have on reclassification or exiting? We discuss these questions and much more with Dr. Sarah Kangas of Lehigh University. As an applied linguist, Dr. Kangas researches the educational experiences of English learners with disabilities. Focusing on K-12 contexts, she is particularly interested in understanding how schools can create learning environments that support both the linguistic and academic needs of these students. Dr. Kangas's research also examines how educational equity for ELs with disabilities intersects with language policies and institutional structures. We hope you enjoy this conversation about a very timely issue. Let's get started. Hello, Dr. Kangas. Welcome to Highest Aspirations. Uh, thank you for speaking with me today. I'm excited to talk to you about English learners with disabilities. Same here. It's a pleasure. It's been we've been communicating for a while, and I'm glad we finally have a chance to to sit down. So, as you mentioned, uh, English learners with disabilities, you're you're working in a really interesting and important intersection of education, English learners with disabilities. Um, and at first glance, these two populations seem to have a lot in common in terms of support needs and specialized instruction but they also seem to be somewhat isolated from each other. Is that an accurate observation? And if so, why do you think that's the case? Yeah, I would say that is an accurate observation for both the students and their teachers. Um, for the students, we tend, in, in my research, I tend to see um, students being grouped by their labels. So if they're an English learner, they're grouped in one classroom. If they're a student with a disability, they're grouped in another. Um, the problem is English learners with disabilities, of course, have both labels. So um, these students tend to get put in either or kind of classrooms and uh, tend to be separated from their, their peers. Um, and in my research, I found that they more typically get grouped with students with disabilities. And so they um, are not really around their English learner peers or peers without disabilities. And you find that's mostly because of just people not understanding, you know, what the specific situation is for English learners, and so they're being categorized as learners with disabilities, is it vice versa? What tends to be the way that they become um, separated? Um, I, I find that they, they do tend to get grouped by their disability status, and I think a lot of it has to do with logistics. Um, there are only so many hours in a day, and, and uh, our educators and our administrators want to be 
um, judicious with that time and make sure that teachers get to support the students as much as possible. So we tend to group students so we can maximize the amount of support they receive. Sure. So as with most things in education, it's all done kind of um, in what we think is the best interest of the student. But you've, you've published a lot of research on why special education and EL teachers working apart doesn't work. Um, and I'm curious, what, what are some of the main reasons why you think this separation isn't effective? And what have been some promising practices to improve the collaboration between those two groups? Yeah, I would certainly say it's not effective. Um, because when we work apart, we're, we're not really seeing how the students' needs fit together. So um, an analogous um, situation would be someone who has different medical needs and they go to this specialist and that specialist and each of the specialists is quote unquote treating the needs of the patient um, but no one's really looking at how maybe these symptoms come together. And I would say we can, we can make that comparison for English learners with disabilities. They get um, a lot of specialized support from individuals who are not really communicating with each other. And then we kind of lose sight of the, of the fuller child, of, of the whole child. I think that's a really great way to put it. And I think all of us, uh, even those of us who have not been in the classroom, can certainly understand going through um, the medical um, kind of puzzle when you're trying to figure out what's happening and you're going to see different specialists um, and not not having one of them completely understand sort of like you mentioned the whole child or the whole patient in that case. So I'm glad you, you brought that up. because I think that's, um, that's a really good way of, of looking at it. And w with schools, like we said, obviously educators have the best intentions, but um, resources, right, are often uh, inadequate. They don't have the resources to actually, maybe they have the resources to specialize in different needs, but not for one person to be able to, to be kind of overseeing this, this whole child case. Um, and so, like you mentioned, what, what, what they tend to do is to track or group EL students with disabilities together. Um, and, you know, that, that's an attempt for them to kind of do the best they can by the students. What are the pitfalls of that? Like, what, what do you find actually sort of happens when they're, uh, when they're tracked together um, in that way? Um, I can speak to what I've seen in my own research. Uh in two of my studies, one, one in an elementary school and one in a middle school, I spent a lot of time observing the instructional support the students are receiving and the, the broader services. And when we group students like that, what ends up happening, number one, is that one service usually gets shortchanged. And a lot of times it's um, the ESL service that gets kind of sidelined um, in order to make way for uh, special ed. And so when, we, when the group of students in particular into a special ed, um, it, whether it's inclusionary or a self-contained classroom, we, we do kind of sideline ESL. But secondly, um, what I've seen is we also have, when we have such a concentration of students uh, with high needs, like a, with all these disabilities that they may have, um, in these particular classrooms, I've seen behavior management really come to the forefront and instruction um, go to the back. So um, why I think that's problematic is one, they're, they're losing opportunities to learn, and two, that creates a very linguistically poor environment where most of the teacher discourse focuses on managing behaviors and, and getting students to, um, to really modify their behaviors. Sure. And that, I mean, I've, as a teacher myself, I've seen that and that could become um, a vicious cycle for the teacher and the students yeah. when we're kind of dwelling on the negativity. Mm -hmm. 
for, for sure. And so all that, those challenges combined with, um, you know, the idea that we, we, both educators and researchers, I think, agree that, that maintaining high expectations and fostering a growth mindset is so important for, for these students, for, for all students, but particularly for these groups of students that we're talking about, um, and ELLs in particular. Um, how, do, how does their identification as ELLs, or, or students who have both, or, or both ELLs and are, have um, disabilities, um, how, does it, how does it affect that? Like, how do we deal with the idea of maintaining high expectations and fostering a growth mindset in students who have kind of both of these labels? Mm -hmm. I think what's tempting is for parents and teachers alike to want to protect students. Um, or protect their children. Um, and what, how I've seen this is there becomes a concern that maybe trying to learn another language while you have a disability is too much of a cognitive burden. Um, Parity and colleagues call this the limited capacity theory, that we only have so much uh, capacity to, to process a language and, and um, we can kind of overburden um, the brain by or by trying to have a student learn a language while they have a disability and so I've seen that um, that kind of concern creep up with parents and teachers uh, where they think maybe maybe it's not good to have a child in a bilingual program if they have a disability um, especially as an English learner because that will just be too much for them and they'll become overwhelmed and that's a that's a mindset that I think is difficult to um, counteract, but um, if we if we look at some of the really interesting research that's being conducted, we see that um, language learners with all kinds of disabilities, even developmental disabilities, do uh, fare better when they're learning in their first language and have that um, that support. So bilingualism is in reach for everyone, and I think that's an important growth mindset to have um, that every student with a disability can um, and, and should learn a language, especially be encouraged to maintain their first language. Yeah, that's, Bo, you bring up a really important point, and I, I, that's, as a, you know, as, as a longtime classroom teacher myself and as a parent, um, I know that it's really difficult to kind of abandon that, uh, maybe not abandon, but loosen that kind of protective nature that you have both over your own children and over the children that you're teaching. And once again, like we come back to, this comes from a place of good where we want to sort of protect these kids. Um, and, and I'm curious, like, is there research is there research on both sides? Like, I mean, there's, there's obviously you've mentioned that there's that there's some research and there's certain a lot of anecdotal information that says that. English language learners with disabilities can learn another language. Um, is there any, not, not to play devil's advocate here, but is there any on the other side, you talked about the capacity for learning that indeed it, do, it is difficult and it may overburden students when, they're, when they have a disability to learn language or is there, is there none there? And I guess I'm asking you a question you may not know the answer to, so sorry to put you on the spot. No, that's a great question. Um, I'm not familiar with, with, um, particular findings that say this this child cannot learn a language but I imagine that when we have some children um, who have disabilities that that affect their communication and it's particularly de um, some developmental disabilities where the where the child actually may um, may struggle with producing language overall I could see that being um, maybe a breaking point um, what, what concerns me is um, 
even for a child like that, we wouldn't want the parents to give up speaking the first language in the home because sure. they're worried about their child. Um, why, why I think that's important to not forsake the first language is that if we take that away, that actually socially can socially isolate a child who already um, may have difficulty um, being connected to the family um, because of the disability and, and some of the nonverbal um, communication um, difficulties they may have. Right. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that those kinds of disabilities are going to affect a student um, or, or a child who is considered an English language learner or a child who's just learning their first language. The kinds of um, disabilities that we're talking about are, you know, related to first language as well. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. So I want to shift gears a little bit, and we've kind of we have a little bit of a basis on these two groups and some of the research and some of your own observations. Um, and and where this kind of all plays out in a lot of schools is the idea of ELL reclassification. Um, f- for the benefit of our listeners who may not be familiar with that term, which is used in some states and not necessarily in others, could you explain it briefly and just tell us why it's important? Sure. So when we reclassify or exit an English learner, we say essentially that this student is proficient in English. They're no longer an English learner. Now they are um, English proficient and uh, no longer um, need those supportive services. So that's really what reclassification or exiting um, means. Sure. And those of us on the East Coast, uh, particularly WIDA states, are familiar with ex- uh, exiting students and uh, California and a few other states are more familiar with that reclassification piece. Um, and I know as, as part of your research, you followed 12 students with disabilities who had been yellow since they were in kindergarten uh, and now are in middle school. Um, what did you learn from that experience and what were some of the factors that led to them not exiting yellow programs or not being reclassified? Mm-hmm. So these, um, just to give some background information, these 12 English learners had high incidence disabilities, mostly learning disabilities and, and reading, writing and mathematics. And some of them also had speech language impairments. Um, and they were six, seven, eight years into receiving services for their language and, and still not exited. And when I looked back over time at these students, what I saw time and time again was that their their proficiency was actually quite high. It was the academic assessments that um, my state in particular, Pennsylvania, required um, for students to perform well on. So that students needed to perform in English language arts and in mathematics at a at a, a certain level. And if they didn't, they weren't weren't able to be reclassified. So that's initially what kept them in. Um, just about a year and a half ago, my state though changed the reclassification criteria and developed specific criteria for English learners with disabilities. And that kind of changed the landscape of the study because what I found was that um, even though they changed the criteria, what was now keeping students in was teacher recommendation or input from the IEP team. And could you, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Like what kind of input or recommendation uh, from, from those teams were, I mean, wh- where were they getting that information from before? It sounds like it was from um, academic assessments. Were they still pulling that information from academic assessments or was it from a different um, place? 
Um, well, they had the students still had to have um, particular scores relating to their proficiency. There, um, there are quite a few levels of the criteria that we have for the, the students with disabilities now. But um, the IEP teams and the teachers on those teams were um, basically looking at different student data. Okay, let's look at their, their grades or their, their academic assessments. Um, how are they doing? And they would look at the student data, but what was kind of fascinating to me is as they looked at those data, they would ask themselves, well, is the student not making progress because of the language or because of the disability? And I found that fascinating because we can never really answer that question. We don't have a way to really untangle disability and language in a clear way. And most of the time, if the students were properly identified, both, both language and disability are, are influencing how students perform in school. So they ask this kind of unanswerable question and rely more on anecdotal evidence. Um, uh, well, does the student speak in Spanish um, with his friends or, or, and those kinds of things to, to make a to decision. Um, so that's, that was really what was kind of puzzling, but also kind of eye-opening to me was we're kind of asking these questions we can never really answer and then trying to make a pretty significant decision based on that. Yeah, it's another really good point and another kind of piece of the puzzle. And that is that, you know, many teachers and myself included, I mean, I'm guilty of this. I mean, I, I you know, you make observations on a day-to-day -day basis and you, a lot of the information that you take in is anecdotal and you make decisions based on that information. But it sounds like there is, and this is, I think, a classic situation in education, at least in my experience, is there is um, a significant gap between the research, what we know about disability and language and how they're intertwined and how they're not and what is actually happening um, in schools in terms of people making decisions and again like i'll reiterate i've said it i think twice it all comes from a good place the question is how do we bring the research to the teachers in a way that um they can understand that that a complicated situation like disability and language like you said sort of can't be disentangled or looked at um, uh, individually. That, that seems to be um, kind of a reoccurring theme in, in, in what we see in, in education. But I mean, I think, you know, the, the, these conversations are a huge part of it and you giving us your perspective and us speaking with, with people on the ground. Yeah, I think um, it's not just about the research um, being disseminated. Um, it's certainly a two-way conversation between those doing research and, and those in our classrooms. But I also think that um, as states are, are rolling out new reclassification or exit criteria, they're many times not providing districts the support to interpret those criteria. Sure. So, you know, we have these criteria in Pennsylvania, but there's not um, a clear explication of how do you try to sift through this really complicated matter? And so, um, our teens, our teachers are, are left to put the pieces together themselves and, and are trying their best. So I think the, that we have all, a lot of change in this area and not necessarily the support to the leadership and, and um, teachers who, are, who need to interpret and make these, these decisions. Yeah, another good point. And it's interesting because we're starting to see, or at least I, I think from my perspective, we're starting to see EL teachers kind of become the experts that they are in their schools and imparting their expertise and experiences and knowledge onto content teachers who 
are working with English language learners. I think that's a slow process, but we're seeing that. We just had a, um, a podcast episode last week that talked about EL um, teachers as, uh, as, as leaders in the schools for, for PD and, and experts. And I think that wave is happening. But then when you add this element, this, this SPED element into it, um, now it really requires more collaboration between teams um, and sort of adds an extra layer on. Yeah, I'd say collaboration and also advocacy. Um, you don't necessarily have to be an expert to advocate for your students. Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, in the research that I've done, a lot of times what I see is uh, English learners with disabilities don't get language services at all because the disability is considered more um, important and more legally significant in the sense that um, special ed um, has a lot of laws and this IEP document that uh, are seen as having more teeth legally and, and so teachers and schools want to ensure that those services are provided. So we kind of, we put ESL off to the side and what we end up having is students who are not getting language support. And I think that's where we need, um, especially for our students with disabilities, um, our ESL teachers being the, the strong advocates they, they can be for the students and say no, that the students actually do need to receive this service. It is uh, a legal service um, that students are entitled to as, as part of their, their civil and educational rights. Great. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we hear the expression all the time that all teachers are teachers of language, um, whether or not that's caught on to sort of all content teachers, all mainstream teachers everywhere is another question. Um, but definitely the, the push is there. So while I have you on, um, sorry, I, I want to shift gears a little bit to um, what's happening in California, just the, the sheer numbers of ELLs that are there. I know you've done some research there. Um, and the fact that it has its own set of reclassification um, policies. I'm curious uh, if you're seeing, for our audience out there in California, if you're seeing um, if there are reclassification challenges that are unique to that state, and like I said, just given the sheer numbers of English language learners there. I think that California and a lot of other states that have a large number of English learners have, have dealt with this for a long time. And what what the issue is is that our English learners are diverse and they are a heterogeneous population. And that's what becomes challenging when we have exit criteria, um, whether or not the exit criteria, for example, consider a student having a disability. Um, most states have just one set of criteria and they don't really take into consideration how a disability could change uh, whether these criteria are fair or not. Um, and so I think California is um, a little bit ahead of the game in the sense that uh, California requires several different criteria and not just one. We have most of our states just require one test score for their English language proficiency. Mm -hmm. So a huge decision um, which influences curricular access uh, for our students, especially in secondary grades. Um, this huge decision is riding on just one test score. And those states um, are, are definitely behind, behind the game um, by just placing so much on one single criterion. But California has a multi-measure approach, which I find encouraging. Um, but they also have uh, the teacher input um, 
criteria that I shared about earlier and that we have in my state as well. And this is where we can start losing some ground if we're not considering um, English learners with disabilities. So California is trying to do that in their in the way they assess for language, but some of their other criteria um, kind of forget more or less about disability. Yeah, sounds like there's work to be done there as well. And I, I really, um, you know, agree with you when, when you talk about the idea of placing so much emphasis um, on one assessment um, and how that really has uh, huge ramifications on the future of the student, as you mentioned, particularly as they go on to the secondary schools. But it sounds like just, just unpacking a little bit, it sounds like the more elements we add to reclassification or exiting, the more chance we have for um, sort of interpreting it uh, the wrong way or adding some anecdotal information that may not necessarily be um, as valuable as some of the other information that we can include. So, you know, when we're designing these reclassification um, criteria and exit criteria, it uh, sounds like we need to be really thoughtful and intentional about how we're, how we're setting them up. Yeah, I think we're going to see um, in the next couple of years, the pendulum swing both ways where we're, where we're um, having too high of um, kind of unreasonable expectations that we don't even have for English proficient students and what we require. On the other hand, um, lowering standards and making it too easy to be reclassified, and which would essentially push English learners out of their services. So I think we're, we're going to see um, states kind of over and under reacting in, in either direction in ways that um, may not necessarily benefit our English learners, but hopefully we'll get somewhere in the middle and find more of a, a level ground where, where we're not being too unreasonable in either direction. Sure. And you just got to kind of part of what my next question was, which is, you know, where do you see all this going in the next five to 10 years? And then the other part of that question, which I'll, which I'll ask you to answer is, I mean, are there, you've mentioned a few, but are there any promising practices or bright spots that you could point us to in terms of what's happening now and how that might inform um, the future? In terms of um, where I see things going, especially with English learners with disabilities, is striking the balance between, you know, having criteria that are the same as all the other students because we want to hold them to a high standard, um, and then having criteria that are artificially too low or too easy to meet. Um, so again, that those kind of two ends of, of the, the spectrum. But some bright spots that I've seen is definitely one that involves interdisciplinary teams, and that could be an IEP team, but we definitely would want the voice of an English um, in ESL teacher or bilingual teacher on that team. So those interdisciplinary teams um, looking at the data together, but also making sure that, that the environment is responsive to the students. I think when we ask the question, is it language or disability, we're automatically just looking at the student. We're not considering the environment. What kind of instruction are we providing? Is that student, does the student even receive any language support? And that's an important question to ask because we can't really expect our students to be exited if we're not providing those supports. So I think schools that um, are looking at the environment as well as multiple data points and are doing that with experts 
um, from both special ed and ESL and bilingual education. That's great. I'm going to ask you to elaborate a little bit on what you mean by uh, the environment being responsive to the student. Um, what I mean by that is I, I don't think we can make a decision about a student's progress without looking at what we're doing or, or in some cases what we're not doing. Um, and just as before we would refer an English learner for a special education evaluation, we'd want to do everything we can in the environment to see if the student responds. So some, like an RTI model, for example, um, I would advocate the same on the other end that we would look also at the environment and not just at the student um, to understand the progress that he or she is, is making academically and linguistically. Right. Yep. Not just looking particularly at that one student in a, uh, in a vacuum, I should say, but uh, yeah, yeah. In, in the context that he or she is a part of every day. What are the, what are the teachers doing? What could we change? Um, looking at students who have exited who are English learners and what have their teachers done to support them? Looking at those exemplary models could really help um, direct what we're doing with students before, before they're exited. Gotcha. Yep. That makes sense. Uh, one more question that I like to ask everybody who comes on, um, because we love to share resources. Is there a book or other resource that has influenced you in either your personal or professional life that you'd like to share? Yeah, so um, I probably I would say maybe seven years ago, I read a book by the late uh, Jeanette Klingner. Um, and she's really, she was really the for like the forerunner in um, looking at English learners with disabilities and broke a lot of ground. Um, this was a population that no one was really talking about and researching and she um, she really pulled them, um, these students into the spotlight and, and had educators and researchers thinking about these students. And her book um, that she wrote with her colleagues, Why Do English Language Learners Struggle With Reading? I thought was a very powerful book because it was one of the earlier texts to get us thinking about how um, when you're learning a second language and you have it and on one hand or if you have a disability on another particularly a learning disability how oftentimes those can mirror one another and this was an important point because we can we don't want to mistake second language acquisition for a disability or vice versa so I thought this book really highlighted how those, how a disability and learning a second language can often manifest in the same types of behaviors, academic behaviors you would see from a student, um, especially as they're reading. And I found this book particularly powerful. I think it's, it was very useful and I would recommend it to any teacher or, or, or anyone who has interest in this population. Great. Appreciate the recommendation. And what we'll do is, as always, we'll include that in the show notes uh, on our website so people can access it and find it um, if they want to. So final question for you, Sarah, and that is, um, what's a, I mean, you mentioned the book, which is great. Um, is there any other uh, way that you would recommend people learn more about um, English language learners and special education and specifically the work that you're doing um, or that your colleagues may have done? Sure. Um Outside of my own work, I would put I would point um, your, your listeners to the Dear Colleague letter that came out in 2015 from the Departments of Justice and Education. This letter identifies common issues that are occurring in, in English learner education, and there's a whole section dedicated to English learners with disabilities. Why I appreciate this particular letter is that it 
seeks to dispel some common misconceptions we have about English learners with disabilities and how we should be um, supporting them in schools. I find that if someone reads this letter, they, they would see their own school in, in the words that, that they're encountering on the page. So I recommend that letter um, for not just English learners with disabilities, but all English learners um, for our educators um, and our administrators. In terms of my own work, I have a professional webpage, sarahkangas.com, and I post my articles and different um, talks that I'm doing, as well as my faculty webpage at Lehigh University. Great. And that, that's kind of how I uh, found you, Sarah. I've looked at through that information and I will say it's very useful. And I think that this is an area um, that people need to learn um, more about as evidenced by our conversation. Um, and I really appreciate you coming on and talking about such a uh, difficult and confusing topic, but one that is clearly very important. Really appreciate the work you're doing. So thanks so much. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.